So a set of ideas about borders has become increasingly prevalent, commencing, I think, with the supposition that mobility is inherent in uh, human life uh, rather than an exception uh, to an assumed settled existence. So the idea is mobile communities precede the formation of states, and following from this, states are seen as um, political organizations primarily <coughs> um, regulating the movements of populations, uh, especially at frontiers. And I think this perspective has informed a lot of recent work on borders, uh, studies of migration, transnational flows of goods, and cross-border trade, smuggling, trafficking, and all that kind of thing. So the focus in this literature is on movement, uh, enterprise of people such as traders or migrants, or these kind of characters, um, the porosity of borders, colonial borders, and national borders. Now, I think um, this focus on mobility tends to have two concomitants. First, that the people who are trapped in immobility, or kind of left behind, receive a lot less attention. Um, and second, that the way the state is conceived um, uh, is... Um, is one appearing really as a kind of relatively inert and uh, repressive body, uh, a sort of responding to um, and only occasionally kind of preempting all these mobile and enterprising things going on in borders. And it's that latter assumption that I want to probe in this paper. A recently edited collection by Khalil Sur and von Schindel has drawn attention to the fact that the state um, is not a neatly coordinated machine with all its agents acting uh, in unison. And they point out that governments, uh, they're working on Southeast Asia, um, suffer from a persistent implementation deficiency and an inability to put their policies into practice. Now, I think it's certainly important to uh, clarify the limits of the regulatory capacity of states. And I, I think this paper, I hope it will contribute a little in that direction. But my focus, main, main focus, is going to be different. I suggest taking seriously um, this multiple, disunited, and incoherent aspects of, the, of state institutions, and then taking the next step, which is to realize um, that the various state agencies are no less enterprising and even mobile uh, than the people they're attempting to regulate. And this means that from a theoretical point of view, an international border, uh, a zone you know, where you have all these different um, activities of very diverse state agencies and all the mobile people, where they're all intersecting, that becomes a, becomes a kind of matrix of um, interactive trajectories, some of which contradict each other and some of which um, accommodate one another and form kind of synergies. And so the outcomes are really quite unpredictable. So um, this is a, a very sketchy map of the border I'm going to be talking about in this kind of journal on here. And just a little bit about this border. I think uh, this kind of question is quite important to think uh, about incoherence in relation to Russia and China because both of these countries obviously have highly centralized governments and therefore they're usually seen as monolithic and integrated. And in the period of high socialism, of course, um, the, the various administrative branches were held together by the Communist Party. Uh, in both cases, a structure designed to penetrate um, right through to every organization in the land. Although, actually, if you think about the 20th century history and all the abrupt and drastic swings it, it went through, and the huge um, socio-demographic diversity in both countries, it's really far from clear that they ever achieved that goal, but anyway, they, the party certainly had that idea. So if we move to the present, um, they've now had all these so-called strategic partnerships between Russia and China, and I think they show that they've still got a lot in common, common these countries. So you have a common idea of the state dominating over the market, um, the role of officials in seeking business partners, uh, non-commercial criteria used to judge uh, whether a project is successful or not, and the value given to really non-transparent but so-called strategic goals in, in planning. Um, nevertheless, so they, they have those things in common. Nevertheless, I think that um, uh, heterogeneity and multiplicity in the sphere of operations called the state 
have become unmistakable. I think these patterns of uh, diversity are different in the two countries, if only because the Communist Party still does have a central role in China, <coughs> which doesn't in Russia, and in Russia uh, interests have become much more personalized at every level. So I think, of course, it's, it's all clear to every person in this room that the so-called state in any country is to some extent incoherent. But I'm going to suggest here that um, the Russian case is distinctly more so than the Chinese. And by incoherence, I refer not to politicians arguing about policy. I'm not going to talk, I don't <coughs> really mean by things like that different bits of the state are competing for the same resources. But I'm talking really about fractures that have got no evident means or forum for being resolved. And this could include, for example, the presence of different goals in the same institution. It could include, of course, stated policies that are radically different from practice. And most germane for this paper, the kind of co-presence in one site, one place, of these multiple agencies which have very uh, divergent agendas. So I'm not going to do a Russia-China comparison, that's all I'm going to say about it today, but I'm really going to look at the Russian side in this paper. Um, and I, I obviously, I'm, as an anthropologist, I'm aware of vast literature on so-called state, and I'm going to have to leave aside all sorts of interesting kinds of things that could be said about the Russian from that point of view. So what I'm trying to do here is something a bit more limited, which is to investigate specific discontinuities and interests of actors at um, state agencies in, at the border, um, look at the kind of socio-technical and spatial environments they work in, and the ways um, in which their activities are not, in fact, purely just repressive or reactive, but actively creative and mobile. So <coughs> there's another reason why this border here uh, may seem a rather unlikely case for making an argument about anything to do with dynamism, because um, it's an extremely old and politically well-established border. Uh, first sort of bits of it were set up by the Treaty of Nerchinsk in 1689 between the Tsarist government and the Manchu Qing Empire. And that established kind of eastern stretch um, along here, and well, actually it was up there. Um, and then there were early 18th century other agreements. Um, and then uh, in the 19th century, the so-called unequal treaties when Russia grabbed a huge area of China over here, um, which are still grumbled about in China today. And I think, I haven't got time to discuss it, but if you look at the history of those kind of treaties and what actually went on, um, it becomes uh, apparent even at that period that the two countries had very different attitudes to borders. Um, now the, today, the line of the border follows rivers, mainly sort of uh, Usuri, Amur, and uh, open rivers are up there, and this is the only bit that's a land border. Um, and on the Russian side, that line is regarded by officials, and I think the vast majority of ordinary Russians, as an absolute boundary. It's non-negotiable. It's it's even a sort of sacred attribute of the state. Of guarding our border is what keeps the heart of the Russia as an idea, the, the guarantee of its kind of power and wholeness. Now, the fact is that these rivers are full of islands, and uh, they're also always changing their course. And so it's actually quite difficult, really, to maintain this thing. And in the 1960s, the China and Russia had a war over the uh, disputed areas. Now, the China, Chinese, on the other hand, I think, have a, a rather different idea that um, borders are negotiations, that you have it, pervade, and there's this nego but then there might be another negotiation, they're changeable, and in any case, they see them today, I think, very much as an opportunity. Um, they said no problem seeing over the border into Russia as a zone of possibilities, and that's where, yes, we could set up enterprises over there. Um, so just another brief thing about this border, which is that for, for years and years in the Soviet period, there was a very common understanding that Russia was the vanguard country, that the first socialist country, um, 
politically, economically, ideologically in the forefront, more progressive, more technologically advanced, a better standard of living, better educated, all that kind of thing. And it's only really in the last 10 years or so, I think, in my experience, when China has become immeasurably wealthier and population is disappearing out of Siberia, that that has been completely overturned and China is clearly far the more powerful of the two. And this is very evident on the border where you get um, Sorry, this is the map that I hope some of you have got. Um, so if we look, I'm just going to look at these two towns here, Zabaifals in Russia and the Manjuria in China. Uh, this is Zabaikals, so it's a sleepy, nondescript place, and uh, this is Manjuri. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> now these, these kind of towns that dot the border on the Chinese side, they flourish because of the trade flows between the two countries, a massive export of raw materials from Russia, and more importantly, perhaps for this paper anyway, huge import of manufactured things through these towns from China into Russia. And what it means, of course, is that um, all the other things that go with that, sort of storage facilities, transport, hotels, restaurants, interpreters, tailors, vendors, all the rest of it, that's all overwhelming on the Chinese side. This draw in labor from all over North China, uh, there are <coughs> you know, the more jobs there, that means they do construct housing and then more jobs and then um, the other thing about these places is that they've become great tourist destinations. And initially I thought it was tourist for Russians, but actually it's not really. It's, it's tourism for Chinese people coming from other parts of China. And um, <coughs> this is very far from the case in a place like Zabaikansk, which is sort of seen as dull, cold, sleepy, you know, the last place you want to go. This, these towns are attractive. Um, you know, they sort of market themselves as being on the grasslands of fresh air and close to so-called European culture. And um, so thousands and thousands of Chinese people come to enjoy all of that. And um, the people in Manjuli put on these shows. This is uh, a group of Russian dancers. Uh, here are all these Chinese people coming to watch it, and they sort of decorate themselves with hammer and sickle. And so um, they sort of have a kind of cosmopolitan atmosphere with lots of different uh, signage and languages and different scripts. Uh, now, I want to talk about migration. Um, I think this border is very different from other uh, more studied borders of Russia, like in Central Asia, Ukraine, or North Caucasus, or the Baltic <coughs> region, because these, or those regions, are dominated by mass migration to Russia from poorer countries of the CIS, um, uh, from which, in general, citizens don't need visas. In this region, in Northeast Asia, labor migration is primarily from China. Visas are acquired, and crossing the border for any purpose is very strictly controlled. There are quotas for labor migration set in every province along the border. And some people predicted this will mean that labor migration will trickle to a halt, but for the timing, it isn't like that, because the wages still are higher on the Russian side than in neighboring Chinese provinces, and so there still are people who want to do this and earn some money in Russia. And on the Russian side, there's a huge appetite for uh, Chinese labor from almost every kind of enterprise, but particularly manufacturing and farming. And that's not only because of the declining demographics in Siberia, people moving away, but because positively people prefer Chinese workers to Russian ones. So let me quote from two Russian farmers. It costs us more to hire Chinese than our own workers. They get the same rate of pay, but we also have to pay for their accommodation, food, taxes, payments to officials, and so forth, at our own expense. So economically, it doesn't make sense, but we have to do it, or we could not fulfill our orders. And another one said, well, you can't find a Russian worker. He's here today, gone tomorrow. Today he's sober, tomorrow he's drunk. And the day after tomorrow, he's taking your tractor and gone fishing and driven it into the water. That's the problem. 
we take Chinese not because they're cheap, but because they can do more and they don't drink and they work the eight hours set. So I think talking about incoherency, I'm going to start now with this question of the foreign um, labor, uh, migrant labor quotas because um, that's as good a place as any to, to start thinking about the incoherence of Russian state agencies. Maybe have some migrant labors. Now, according to a, a document called The Concept of the State Migration Policy of the Russian Federation, the general aims are the growth of the economy, social and demographic development, and defense of the national interests of Russia. And this is an official document, um, and it recognizes that only uh, very strong and sustained in-migration can counterbalance Russia's, Russia's demographic de decline and provide the labor necessary to develop the economy. But it also acknowledges that the existing system places obstacles in the way of realizing the policy. Uh, so to quote the, the system of attracting temporary labor <coughs> is ineffective, contracts are limited to one year, um, and the current system of quotas does not reflect the real demands of the Russian economy. Uh, it's extremely difficult to obtain a residence permit. To get it, the applicant has to be included in the quota, which is determined, I'm still quoting from the document, determined according to the proposals of the organs of state power of the administrative regions of the Federation. And the difficulty for migrants in acquiring legal status <coughs> then complicates the process of obtaining citizenship. And this concept then goes on to uh, criticize other things, no program for housing and education, integration of immigrants, inadequate so uh, support for refugees, and so on. Now, the odd thing, I think, is that the Federal Migration Service, that's called FMS, that issued this very reasonable and humane document is the very same agency that administers the quotas and issues the work permits. So how can we understand this? I think that the concept is not really an exercise in self-criticism. It's, it's more like a sort of swipe at these unspecified organs of state power that dictate the numbers in the quotas. And so consequently, although it is actually a legislative document, attempts to have it this concept adopted in practice has been put on <coughs> the back burner. Now, background to this is that the Migration Service, the FMS, was abolished in 2000. It was reconstituted in 2002, but now it was no longer an independent structure, was, but was part of the Ministry of Internal Affairs. And so for the next several years, migration has been treated as a security issue. Now these labor migrant quotas have been going down year by year, with the numbers in 2012 less than half of those of 2011. And so I think you could probably all see the most obvious result of this is that large numbers of migrants have no alternative to working illegally or, or kind of extra-legally. In other words, in conformity with some kind of accepted practices, but not with the quotas. So of the 5.5 million people indicating working as the purpose of their visit to Russia, only 1.2 million have work permits, and uh, probably many of the 3.5 people who, a million who declared on arrival that they're coming not to work, they probably are in fact also uh, working illegally. Now, it's generally true, I think, that a blind eye is turned on all this um, if the migrants come from as countries, but that is absolutely not the case of the Chinese. So since the FMS, the Federal Migration Service, has to cope with myriad problems of all kinds concerning migrants and refugees, it finds itself in this contradictory position of administering the policy that creates its own biggest headaches. Now you could maybe say, I think, that some sort of incoherence a bit like this um, exists in many countries attracting migrants. But I think some of the less obvious consequences are peculiar to Russia. So we have, on one hand, a populist demand 
it seems, um, to reduce in migration, um, resulting in the president of Russia, Putin, making these orders about quotas. Um, now, what he does, he also appoints the governors of the regions of uh, Russia, who used to be elected, now they're appointed by him. Um, and as Rizhova, um, a Russian uh, writer, observes, it's very possible that these governors responding to the presidential construction and desiring to demonstrate political loyalty will actually try to reduce the quotas in their region. And they'll do that even though all the local businesses uh, desperately need the labor and they're lobbying for the opposite. Um, well, at the same time in the same region, you probably get some other firms that um, uh, are fearing competition from foreign uh, foreign firms and their lobby f lobbying for the quotas to, to be reduced. So governors are between two kinds of lobbies. But I think, the, in my experience, the one desiring higher quotas, more migrants, is immeasurably bigger. But in any case, business is a main source of income for the regional budget. And it's also, importantly, um, a source of what the Russians politely call the military rent. In other words, the kickbacks and bribes and so forth derived um, from the power to issue um, all these kind of licenses, permits, and so forth. So, uh, to quote Rizal again, the governors say they're answering this demand from the centre, responding to Putin. Uh, they find themselves in classical political economy contradiction between the federal centre and the region, between the interests of business and the necessity of doing the budget on the one hand and between things like um, getting maximum so-called administrative rent now and against um, the possibility of long-term prosperity later. So they're obviously in a situation where they, they got things to weigh up and given that these quotas are issued on a yearly basis, uh, this means they've got something to play with. I mean, they doesn't have to be the same as last year. So uh, they can raise or lower these barriers for businesses getting um, quotas. But in general, of course, you can see that the smaller the quota, in other words, the scarcer the worst per work permit, the higher the sums that somebody in this whole system can obtain in administrative rent. Is that sort of clear? <laughs> I hope this word administrative rent is not putting you off. What it means is um, uh, the, the bribes and kickbacks. Now, these barriers to entry into the market exist not only in relation to migration quotas, but much more widely. And many of them are very evident at the border. So they include things like issuing um, monopoly rights of something kind of business, or licenses, import tariffs, subsidies, to certain categories of economic actor, state purchases of various things, or sanitary environmental protection laws, registering <coughs> goods and certifying businesses. Now, of course, I mean, those kind of barriers um, are set up by absolutely all states um, broadly to protect society. But only in some countries do state officials really widely use these limits to extract rent. And I think what's significant um, in the Russian case, this, this is my argument, is it, this isn't really just a matter of extraction, but it's also productive in the sense that um, <coughs> it always has these side consequences. So let's assume, for, think about it a bit, if we assume for the moment that the governors want higher quotas for their regions, that they, they want their region to flourish and have more labor and so forth, now, there are two levels at which the state agencies erect barriers. At the federal level, we have a, an inter-regional commission that oversees this bargaining for quotas between the governors. And then in each region, the Federal <coughs> Migration Service allocates the permits to the firms competing for a share of the quota. So in both cases, whether it's the, the matter of the state political actors and the state agencies <coughs> or between regional branches of the agencies and the business firms, um, we have to see that this, and this is where it's conducted, it's not just a game between two actors. It's not just 
the one receiving the money and the one paying it. It's in principle always three because there's, uh, there's always a third actor who is the one who does not have access to the official, who can't pay up, and uh, the one who suffers when the rent payer prospers. So this game kind of has the effect of jolting. You can see the fates of businesses in the border zones up or down like an annual lottery. Um, but sorry to complicate, there's, there's yet another paradox that appears in all this because sometimes the quotas are not taken up. So for example, in 2011, only 70% of the quota of 21,000 work permits for the Habarovs cry were allocated. Now, Habarovs cry, oh, well, it's way over on the, the far east of your map then. Um, the official said, well, we haven't, we haven't distributed them, it's all the fault of the firms because they're p uh, paying low wages and um, they're paying lowers on the living wage and they're reinforcing poverty in our region and they're, they're lowering the resource space for our budget and, and, you know, so we're not giving them out. But I think that kind of ac accusation was only one of a number of extremely hazily defined reasons for refusing work permits. Um, because, of course, there's an incentive for um, the agency, the state agency, to increase the number of potential objections. Um, so another one, for example, was um, the assessment of the application to have a work, work permit in view of the existing labour resources of the region. And that could mean virtually anything. Anyway, each of these reasons is another potential source of administrative rent. Now, in the following quotation, this is um, an interview given by a farmer who was trying to hire Chinese workers. Imagine how his path might have been eased by attending to the signals that rent could be paid. He said, yes, that celebrated employment centre. I put in an application. Well, I continuously have applications in there. They don't give me a single person. When I applied for Chinese, they told me we are obliged to give you Chinese, but we haven't got any. So you'll have to teach Russians to do the job. So I put in another application, and they said you need confirmation from the Ministry of Agriculture. I write to the Ministry, and they give me a chit saying, yes, you're right, it's not possible to teach Russians to do this job, you've got to have Chinese. So I sent in three letters, three months went by, you understand what's going on, he said, it's enough to send you mad. Um, so I won't go on with this quotation, but you can see the kind of thing people go through. Um, so to get through those barriers, what the businesses do is, if it's a large firm, they um, will have a special department to negotiate all these um, permissions and so forth, and the smaller firms use a middleman. But in, a, in either case, the people doing this job have to be paid, and it's expensive. And that's not even, not even counting the payments, the informal payments that have to be made. And finally, there's a thing called an official administrative rent, which is called the state duty, the Koshlema, which in uh, 2011 was 6,000 rubles uh, payable per foreign worker. So if you think about all of that, you can easily uh, imagine why, in fact, the whole of the quota wasn't taken off, even if, you know, many, many businesses really wanted to hire Chinese labourers. Um, and, and you can also see why what they do, of course, is hire uh, illegal migrants. But that is also an expensive and difficult um, process, because it means setting up an undercover partnership with a, a Chinese entrepreneur who will supply these people, um, and that requires contacts, and a lot of Russians don't have them. And it also having a, means having a personal relation of trust with this Chinese uh, person, uh, which also requires a kind of cultural fle flexibility that a lot of people don't have. And furthermore, of course, it means dividing your profits with him. Um, and in the border regions, um, it's really widespread that the only way uh, to make these arrangements more or less legal is um, 
for the Russian part to become just a sort of mere figurehead, a sort of stand-in for um, for the Chinese uh, entrepreneur who is the actual person who owns and runs the business. And uh, that some Russians find very humiliating. Um, in general, though, I mean, in this kind of administrative environment, you can see that the more ways such a business infringes the law, the more kind of stand-in people and dodgy documents and all the rest of it, the more costly the outlay to the officials um, to turn a blind eye. So in one case described to me, um, there was an Evenki uh, woodsman uh, who discovered seams of nephrite rocks in the forest. And he began to use undercover Chinese networks of miners and um, lorry drivers to export these rocks and sell them over the border in China. And uh, in China, nephrite is suddenly becomes jade, white jade, and it's extremely valuable. So this man got extremely rich. Um, okay, then he started up an affair with the wife of the deputy head of the regional FSB, uh, the security service. And the business continued to grow. Um, now, ask yourselves which of the two is the more kind of entrepreneurial entrepreneurial or enterprising here. Um, soon, however, according to an unverified rumour, another FSB official from Moscow was gambling in Macau in a casino, and he noticed somebody throwing around a lot of money, and he said, who's that? And um, they told him, well, it's one of yours, it's a Russian. And he went back and decided to investigate, and it turned out to be this Evenki businessman. Um, and he decided to um, really to try and squeeze him out. And now according to the local Evenki, um, this business did end, but it wasn't because it was illegal and because the police just came and said, you're doing illegal stuff, we're going to close you down. It was because um, the boss actually had to pay out so much <coughs> now on all sides, if you think about it, there's <laughs> only two lots of SFP and uh, that the business no longer became profitable. And he decided to, uh, uh, to sort of fade away and melt over the border into China, where he is now. <coughs> anyway, so far I've tried to show how the practice of administering and charging for migrant labor contradicts the stated goals of the Migration Service, um, how the desire of state-appointed governors of the regions to demonstrate political loyalty by reducing quotas stand in the way of their main task, which is to make their regions economically successful. Uh, and I, I've also tried to show that these kind of incoherence in the state have consequences. Um, now, one knock-on effect of the fact that the quotas are bargained for and reset every year is that um, obviously, from the official point of view, the point of view of the officials, it's good because you can gather rent every year repeatedly. Um, but it means that the firms who are trying to make a living are caught up in a, a very expensive, time-consuming, and annually changing game, and it affects their economic decisions. And so, the next bit of this paper is I'd like to sort of look at this kind of thing at the physical border itself. Um, now, at the border, uh, there are quite a large number of state agencies. There's the Border Guard Force, um, which is a militarized body, and it's since 2003, it's no longer been a separate body. It's now subject to the um, Federal Security Bureau, or Security Service, the FSB. Um, but the Border Guard Force is separate, I think, from the surveillance and the political sections of the FSB. Anyway, along with the Border Guard, there is the Customs Service, the police, the State Bank, um, the Russian Army and Air Force, um, Health, Sanitary and Veterinary Services. And all these bodies have offices clustered on the Russian side of a, a kind of corridor of so-called no man's land. Uh, that separates the sort of terminals of the two countries. And I think we have a, a border guard uh, about the next bit of the border I'm going to talk about, because these border guards also manage a so-called exclusion zone, and this would be an entrance into exclusion zone, 
And this is an area of land that anything from three kilometers, usually it's about 30, but in some areas up to about 100 kilometers wide, that extends along the length of the Russian frontier and creates a sort of second internal border. Now, anybody wanting to go in there, and not only foreign people, but local people also need to have um, a, a permit. Um, and so one of the first volatilities in this kind of area to be noted is that after 2004, the FSB was given the right arbitrarily to change the contours of this zone without consulting any other, you know, no local government or anything like that. So, for example, in 2008, they decided to expand the zone in the Primorsky Krai to include large settlements, roads, resorts, and so forth, and effectively blocked economic development there. And currently, the city of Blagoveshensk, which is on your little map, part of it is inside this exclusion zone and part of it isn't. And uh, recently, the FSB decided to lift this exclusion zone for some of these neighborhoods but then they suddenly reclose them again. Um, so I think this is one example of the arbitrary, as far as one can tell, arbitrary mobility of a state agency, because each time they move the checkpoints, it causes immense disruption and sort of widespread shifting of various everyday patterns, you know, the where bus routes go with you, all the rest of it, among the people who live there. And another point is that only some of these checkpoints are manned. I, I was in this area in the summer, and a place like this, you might find it's manned like this, but you might not. And so these places can stay sort of um, empty for months, but they always exist as a kind of potential entrapment um, for people trying to cross. So we have this, um, these kind of incipient points of closure along the lines of the exclusion zone. The main border itself, though, is all also quite volatile because it's very much subject to sort of half promises and projects for new openings. So these include a bridge across the river Amur to link Blagoveshensk um, and the Chinese town of Heke. If you look at your map, you'll see they're very close. Another one to link the Jewish autonomous office with China, a bridge across the Usuri, a new road crossing point in Primorsky Krai and so on. And th these have been discussed for years, literally, but none of them have been realized. So one thing that happens is that Chinese company or local officials will come to Russia and say, let's have a bridge, we'll finance it, and the FSB chief of the region stands on it. No, no, we don't want a bridge, security, and so forth. Um, so there's that kind of thing going on, but there's also Another feature seems to be the aspect of this in incoherence is that the local authorities inside Russia are quite rivalrous amongst each other. So each authority fears that if the other guy is going to get his bridge first, um, that means the whole transport structure linking swathes of Siberia to inland China uh, and onwards to the ports on the China Sea and export to Japan and all the rest of it. All that whole thing is going to swing in a new direction and pass them by, and that will have disastrous effects on their economy. Now, another factor lying behind this tendency to close uh, crossing facilities is the recent history of illegality. So we have the border force, the customs, and the police, they all kind of lining up behind the FSB to declare themselves eager to clamp down on illicit activities like smuggling and so forth, poaching and all the rest of it. And now they see, as part of their brief, they have economic security, not just political security. Um, so therefore, you know, they issue reports saying there's great concern about the huge uh, shadow economy on the border. In other words, anything that evades customs and other dues which reached enormous proportions at the turn of the millennium. And even not so long ago, a significant proportion of the inhabitants of the border town of Zabaykalsk, which is on your map, it's a little, dull little town I showed a picture of earlier. In that place, they were apparently involved in robbing trains coming out of China and selling the loot. And the, the reaction of the state border agency was simply to close the whole town off 
put it in the exclusion zone, and tightening the entry controls so that anybody, every car, every bag, every, was, uh, every person was searched and inspected. And so they did, in fact, <coughs> stop this apparent mass theft. But these kind of measures go on um, uh, to neutralize illegality to one kind or another, do continue. And as one very obvious main method is simply to close down the crossing point. So in 2000, a number of crossing points to China were closed down. And in 2010, 14 crossings to Mongolia were discontinued. Um, but at the same time, they opened another one. So um, I don't know if you can see this map. This is the this is Russia, this is Mongolia, and all these little red marks are the crossing points that were closed. But they did open another one over here at a certain point. I haven't got an equivalent map for China, unfortunately. So from the point of view of the FSB the so-called penetration of Chinese into Russia is seen as a problem associated with criminality, shadow business, clannish Chinese diasporas, um, specific Chinese kind of regional associations and the corruption of Russian officials. So depending on the way the winds are blowing and up there somewhere in Moscow, um, some leader or other decides to take all this seriously. Um, wasn't taken seriously last year, but this year they were really going to deal with it. Um, the border crossings are suddenly closed, or they're restricted to certain categories of people, or types of transport, or much more occasionally open. Uh, again, all of which has a huge effect on the people who make their living on the region. Because, obviously, if you're living near a border like this, the difference in prices between, say, Russia and Mongolia is what you, you live off. You buy something, then you sell it over there. And if it's closed, then you can't do it. And, and the net effect is, a, is uh, out-migration. People just move away from the border. And they mostly go up to, from these kind of South Siberia, they mostly go up to the north, where um, there are sort of oil and gas opportunities and construction sites. Uh, and it, it's very sad, actually, because uh, they leave, on the whole, uh, women and children behind. Uh, and, and very few of those kind of blue-collar workers think of going to China. However, uh, there's a different way of educated youth, um, professionals and sort of reasonably well-off pensioners are taking the step of emigrating to the south. And often they visit China first as tourists, um, and then they decide to buy property and find jobs and settle down. So there's a, a one of many times, anyway, the Chinese town of Huncheon has a thriving expatriate community of Russians. Uh, they call the place Chunga, and they, they love the re restaurants, Chinese and Korean restaurants, and they like to synchronize exercising, evening, all that kind of thing. And the city authorities welcome them, and they've built a street called Russian Street. Uh, so this is Huncheon in China, Russian Street, to make people feel at home. So we have on both sides of the border the people in China learning Russian and people in Russia learning Chinese. It's a sort of useful notion of movement across this border, which I don't have time to describe in great detail. But anyway, in sum, you have these kind of transnational subjectivities, um, but they're not, I think, pervasively present among all the people on this border. They may be spreading, but it's not everybody. Um, however, I think it's worth perhaps um, deconstructing this idea of transnational subjectivity a bit, because it's quite a lot used in influential literature. And I think this is because um, if you think about the different values held by each group, they're obviously going to pattern this notion in different ways. And uh, we have to think that not only border travellers, but um, the FSB operatives, the customs officials, and so forth, they, they also have a transnational kind of imaginary. And it exists in, um, in the public variant, but also in hidden and intimate ones. Um, and furthermore, these projections about over there um, are um, 
even if all these agencies are broadly speaking under the sort of security umbrella of the government, they really don't coincide with one another at all necessarily. So some, I would say the um, sort of core surveillance F FSB people, they do hark back to a much longer kind of semi-mythical history of um, this border as a place of counter-revolution, um, Japanese spies, weird theocratic movements against the government and so forth. And um, very long-standing mistrust of the Buryat and Mongolian populations of the region that kind of leach into all of this and make them, um, these FSB people, quite suspicious of things like the, the free economic zones that the Chinese have set up in places like Manchuli and their cities on the border, um, because that's where exactly these indigenous, dubious people are mixing with the Chinese. Now, the other official personnel might have quite different preoccupations, and they could form synergies um, of various kinds with the people who have passed through. And so I think, for example, the Russian customs officials welcome the free trade zones, which the other guys are so suspicious of. And this is because they um, uh, encourage economic activity and they increase the amount of duties, plainly, that can be claimed. However, this situation, I think, um, uh, there's more to it than meets the eye. And to explain these incongruities, I want to discuss um, the main human traffic through the border, which is the shuttle trade. Um, how do I do it for time? Um, another five to seven? Five to seven. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, well, oh, <laughs> I'll... Uh, <laughs> I'm perhaps assuming you, you have some idea of what the shuttle trade is. It's, it's um, uh, an essentially illegal trade in which people are moving through uh, the border carrying great amounts of bags on behalf of companies um, by pretending that, it, that it's their own personal goods and um, they, they thereby don't have to pay customs duties in effect. But in order for the customs officials to uh, not to charge them and say yes, it uh, although they know perfectly well all the stuff is for sale, uh, they're not going to charge them. Okay, we've got a large family, of course we've got all these bags, etc. Uh, they have to bribe the customs officials. So that is absolutely huge. There are thousands of people involved in it. So the agencies try, on the one hand, to regulate and on the other hand, to take advantage of this, and they change the rules the whole time. So. These cause the businesses to expand or contract. So, for example, in 2000, uh, they said that individual people can't cross the border, you've got to go as a tourist in a group. Um, and then the group has to be sent by a company that's been licensed for three years. In 2002, they changed it. Individuals could go. In 2003, the state currencies of Russia and China were made, made exchangeable. Uh, the same year, um, the Chinese massively extended their tra trade zone to include the whole city of Khekhe, Um And basically, we get a, a big splurge of trade. Uh, in, t in 2004, suddenly, um, the Chinese, um, sorry, the Russians began to charge duties on absolutely all baggage um, and reduce the amount of people carry <coughs> to 35 kilograms as opposed to 75. Um, and they also began to sort of target known people who went through several times a day. Uh, so as a result, the sort of social effect was that people who managed all this had to find new people to be the carriers. They're called camels, by the way. They put new camels, so searching in all villages, and you get more and more people drawn into this thing, because they had to be people the customers people didn't uh, recognize. Um, but they went on clamping down, and by um, 2009, the, in Blagovations, where these carriers are called lamps, uh, they, uh, they set up a, a club of the broken lamps, because they were commemorating the sad days that, you know, that the wonderful border trade is now on its deathbed. However, um, suddenly, in 2010, the whole the rules were completely changed again, 50 kilos a day, um, uh, people are allowed to go as often as they like, and um, 
everybody was amazed, but then suddenly it all turned into a new kind of form. And I was there in the summer, and it, that's now practically the situation. You can go unlimited times, it's 50 kg, and no payment. <coughs> and what it means is absolutely rock solid agreements with the custom official and also with a, a Chinese person on the other side called Pamagaika, who helps as, a, as an interpreter. So um, the whole what's an elaborate, laborious system is based on the fact that Chinese people, the control of immigration I mentioned at the beginning, Chinese businessmen are not allowed to come to Russia themselves to sell their own goods. Uh, so the, in these quotas I mentioned, uh, they're differentiated according to what work people do, and under the category of traders, foreign traders, the quota is zero. So that means that if Chinese people are going to go to Russia, um, uh, they would have to um, act as a professional specialist or, or as so-called providers of work for Russians. And under that guise, quite a few people do go. And um, this is a picture of the uh, bit of the uh, shuttle trade. Uh, this is somebody being prisked. Uh, this is a, a Chinese trader and um, who nevertheless managed to get in there, and this is what it's mostly likely some of vans taking the shuttle train across. And it's certainly true that the effect is to provide a lot of extra income for poor people on the Russian side who are just doing these trips to earn money on the side. But I think it's very doubtful that suffering from poor is the reason why it goes on. In my view, it rests on a very unstable balance between three shifting and incompatible factors. One is the degree and intensity of the security services um, demand that the illegality be punished. The second is the level of so-called administrative rent taken by the customs officials. Um, and the third is the plans that are issued um, for the amount of customs duties uh, to be gathered annually in each region and that those sums go into the state budget. Now that factor, that last one, those plans, that to some of you may sound, anybody who knows anything about Russia may sound very familiar with a really Soviet kind of idea. So why do they have a plan for customs duty? It's just come in recently. Uh, I think the reason is that, I didn't realize this until I looked into the figures, the Russian federal budget as a whole of Russia depends very, very substantially on income from duties um, from customs. So uh, from the mid-1900s to uh, sorry, mid 1990s to 2009, the income from customs exceeded, or it was around the same as, uh, the income from internal taxation. Now, the policy, they put a massive amount of money, the policy has from around 2007 has been to centralize it. Um, and they do that by moving the point at which they can actually pay the tax. So um, this kind of restrodilinia of the points where you, if you've got specific goods you're bringing in, you have to present them for customs inspection. Now the majority of these terminals are now miles away from the border, and they're mostly in Moscow. And now, uh, the rationale for all this, as it were, is that over there in this periphery it's all corrupt and we can't control it, so let's have it all in Moscow. But obviously it has a dire effect on the peripheral regions themselves. Um, they're allowed no leeway, they're not allowed to charge lower customs duties which would encourage local economic, economic activity, but they're also deprived of, uh, obviously, um, the hidden income from these rents. So there are several consequences of this. First of all, there's massive centralization of incomes, um, and that's both the above board dues and the administrative rents. <coughs> but also, there's a big alteration in the transit path of goods. And this is a really perverse um, effect from the consumer point of view. So say you're a Chinese businessman, uh, exporter, you want to export something to Blagovations, over, if you look at your maps, it's just over the border in Siberia. What happens is that currently the vast majority of Chinese-made goods sold in Blagoveshins get to Blagoveshins via Moscow. And it's because, um, you know, several thousand miles deep data which raises the prices. 
Um, and so this arises partly from what I've just described, this business that for all these goods you have to take them to the right customs um, declaration point. But it also, I think, comes from a different kind of set of um, decisions and a different sort of transnational vision emanating from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Um, and this is a vision which some people, really Jorba, who I keep quoting, describe as paternalistic, um, which uses customs agreements and fiscal stimuli to prioritise economic cooperation with certain CIS countries. And when those countries, like Kazakhstan, um, also have a customs agreement with China, uh, then the merchants switch their route and they give up on Siberia, they send it all via Central Asia to vast wholesale markets in Moscow and from there it's sort of sent out to all over uh, Russia for retail sale in the regions and that would include some way over like Lagavations. Um, so this is some <coughs> should be so in other words what if you're in here, China here, instead of sending straight up here, it goes all the way to Moscow and all the way back again. Um, however, I just want to say a brief word before concluding about the system of plans. Um, so imagine your customs official on the border and the plan he's got doesn't refer to the volume of stuff going in and out, but to the duty taken, and there's a so-called control figure which is specified, you're told each year what it is, and then it's sort of broken down by month, and each month you've got to get that amount of duty. Now, um, <coughs> if you look at the figures, it's very suspicious that they always fill it just around 100%. Uh, also extremely Soviet, of course. Anyway, um, what it means is that the customs officials on the spot must be making ad hoc adjustments in the tariffs because they can't do anything about the flow of goods. You know, it depends on who happens to be sending stuff through. Um, it's not under their control. But they have to fulfill the plan, because that's what their job depends on, the bonus depends on. And the only way they can do it is, is to adjust the tariffs or alternatively to give orders to these undercover shuttle teams uh, about how many kg they're allowed to bring in of X or Y. So, I mean, what they do is to try to aim always to get about 100% of the plan or just a hint over so, so they get a bonus, but not too much over because otherwise the plan would be raised <coughs> next year, which is the old Soviet habit. So they're kind of carefully calculating it. The flow must be not too fast, not too slow. So what they do is people come through and they, they will adjust it and they say, okay, well the rule is now it's, it's only 20 kg, sorry, you know, you've got to pay it. And um, this means, in effect, though, because people are aware of this kind of thing, that they, there are ever, ever closer links between customs officers and the undercover shuttle traders. So, because of course, paying this kind of these dues and the administrative rents um, is a central part of their business plan of both of them. Um, so they're all plotting in advance and sort of shifting um, as things happen. And of course the, the customs official is in a very, very um, conflicted position because um, on the one hand he has to, um, if, he, if he wants to pocket the personal income, he's got to preserve the existing system. On the other hand, he's in the system of the so-called organs of power um, and he needs to kind of demonstrate to them politically that he is following the stricter regime. Now, if you think about that, that's his point of view, but of course, from the point of view of the traders, they have several kinds of things, because on top of one arbitrary thing, which is the change of rules on paper, there are another two to be reckoned with, which is um, the adjustments the customs officers are making to get their quota filled, <coughs> and the sum they decide to put in their pocket. Um, and I think that each time you get one of these stricter regimes announced on the border, um, this affects activities, the very announcement of it, because they're constantly coming out with these so-called concepts and draft 
statutes and laws and so forth. They're declared to the public. They're on the website. Look them up. They're in the newspaper. In many cases, they're not passed fully into law, or if they are laws, they're not enacted. And some of them never will be. But people know about them, and um, they discuss them. And of course, they're designed to appear very, very rational and um, official, as if everything is completely clear and coherent. There couldn't possibly be any disagreement. But the effect, because people don't know if they're operational or not, is um, to unleash kind of a host of anxieties and misunderstandings. And uh, you can see all this on the on the internet. The, for example, there was a torrent of muddled queries and labyrinthine answers to the question of what is or what exactly are the dues paid by a so-called physical person, that's a single operator on the Russian uh, border of Russian origin, but living abroad and wishing to come in and import a car. And there was a long debate. Um, and it rapidly got involved in fundamental questions like what is a physical person? Sometimes the physical person is a natural person. Um, how is a, a natural person legally um, defined? And then what constitutes living abroad? In other words, how do you show your, you know, what is documented evidence of living abroad? And just as urgent, what um, obviously all the documents you require, um, the origin of the car, a chip from the Russian embassy, all the rest of it, proof of ownership and so forth, that you need to actually get through the border in case these new regulations have come into force, which nobody knows if they have or not. And so there are lots of contradictory answers. Um, and it's evident that people are searching for signals uh, that will help them plan. You know, they've got to go on a journey, they've got to sell the car, and important purchases or whatever. And they have to take these draft documents into account because they don't know any day now it might actually work. You know, it might be the rule. Um, and so the point I'm making really is because people do on borders, they're not just sort of wandering apart. I mean, they, they're planning what they're doing, um, you know, how much they're prepared to pay, all the rest of it, long before they ever get near the border. Um, and so what that means is that, that these very rational schemes sort of developed in some office are um, having really unforeseen effects on behavior. So that way sort of upstream. Um, so that I- even at a kind of precautionary stage, people are um, getting together and plotting mm-hmm. strategies. So to conclude, I'm sorry, I hope I'm not going too far. I've tried to make sense of the complex and changeable situation at the long northeast Russian China border by focusing on what does not make sense. Um, and I've been suggesting that incoherence of various kinds can be an object of study, and that it, it is as important to the situation of the border as the, the more obvious structures and institutions themselves. I've also been motivated by the idea that the mobilities of the border, both physical and sort of ideational, are produced as much by the institutions of the state as by the travelling people even though the latter are obviously more of often seen as creating energy, while the state is more often seen as a kind of dead weight. I've attempted to show uh, very briefly, and therefore um, in a sketchy manner, that the diverse agencies of the state have been very active, moving, opening, closing, reciting uh, the infrastructure of the border, as well as blocking our planned developments and while proposing others. The, the rules on migrant labour, citizenship categories, tariffs, types and weights of goods that can be transported have been constantly altered and it shows no sign of stabilising really. Um, and in all this, I think it's arguable anyway that the state agencies um, can be seen as the producers of change as much as the mobile people. Um, but my main point really isn't about change itself, um, because I think that's inherent everywhere and um, certainly on all borders throughout the world. It's the incoherence between state agencies produces an extra dimension, 
um, it's, it's a kind of jarring that um, pertains between their practices and splits uh, the public performance from the hidden agreement. Um, it incites roots to be uh, uh, changed and it causes the undercover networks to, to unravel and then the next week to sort of knit themselves together in different patterns. Uh, I think among the people forced to live with all this, the border people, um, it un unleashes very contradictory um, feelings and uh, affects. Really. Uh, you know, on the one hand, sort of quiescence, uh, what the heck, you know, but on the other hand, cunning, you know, how can we get around it? Uh, on the one hand, loyalty to the state, yes, you know, there's all this illegality, we have to deal with it. On the other hand, you know, the personal desires, we really want to make something out of make some money in this situation. And finally, I've suggested that when the state agencies smooth over these inconsistencies, uh, when, you know, there's a pretty prevailing authoritarianism, they, they sort of produce all these draft statutes and laws and so-called so concepts. And these are public, and yet they're completely non-transparent. And this itself produces widespread uncertainty and unpredictable reactions. And you might conclude very simply that incoherence at state level produces simply more incoherence on the ground. Except that I think that would be a, a bit too simple. Because I think that although the evidence seems to be, although there is all this changing going on in agency policies, it's not completely random. Um, and also I think that when there are these shifts, uh, there's almost immediate corresponding uh, appearance of, of a borderland tactic or a borderland strategy even to take advantage of it. So I prefer to end with the idea that incoherence on state borders uh, generates short-term and changing dynamical